entering the Freedom Hut. From collusion to obstruction, the Democrats are moving on now that the Mueller probe isn't going to give them the end of the Trump presidency that they have been promising themselves. We'll dig into how this dishonesty on the left will unfold, plus all of the latest from the Green New Deal. The nonsense continues. And what does rent control teach us about why the left is always wrong on economics? That and more coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Do you think the president obstructed justice? Yes, I do. It's very clear that the president obstructed justice. It's very clear. Uh, 1,100 times he referred to the Mueller investigation as a witch hunt. He tried to, he he fired, uh, uh, he tried to protect uh, Flynn from being investigated by the by the FBI. He fired Comey in order to stop the Russian thing, as he told uh, NBC News. He's intimidated witnesses in public. If that's the case, then is the decision not to pursue impeachment right now simply political? If you believe he obstructed justice. No. Republicans spent two years shielding the president from any proper accountability. It's our job to protect the rule of law. That's our core function. And to do that, we are going to initiate investigations into abuses of power, into uh, corruption of just into uh, corruption and into um, obstruction of justice. Let me tell you something. The real obstruction is the Democrats who are obstructing this presidency. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. I mean, I know we start off with that the Nadler over in Congress, but we're already there, folks. We're already there. They know that Mueller doesn't have them, doesn't have collusion. They know it. They know it. And so now all of the obvious, dishonest, and ridiculous walkbacks, changing the subject, smoke screens, all this stuff. They're all going to try to evade any account of accountability on the media side. And on the political side, they're just going to march on to the next thing. Oh, it wasn't really Russia collusion we were worried about. It was Trump's finances we were worried about all this time. It was the, the, the collusion of the deals that he did back in the 80s or, you know, or something. These people have no honor. You have to remember, they have no honor, they have no integrity. They just view this as a street fight, and whatever they have to do to win, they will. There's so much going on here, folks. There's so much that you're going to see in the next few weeks. Assuming the Mueller probe ends as is expected this month, that much we can say. It's supposed to end this month, according to all the reporting. I've heard from sources in D.C. that that would know that it is going to end soon and that there'll be a report that's given to the Attorney General Barr, and he will then be able to make a determination about what will happen with that report. So we know that it's supposed to come. Now, they could reopen stuff, and you know, until it's done, yeah, yeah, it ain't over until the fat lady sings. Fine. But the left has to prepare the ground, too. They can't just wait for the inevitable disappointment among their frenzied partisans about this collusion situation. That there is no collusion. That Trump has been right all along. You and I 
working through this problem together for two years have not been wrong one time on a matter involving Russia collusion. Not once. Not one time I had to say, oh, you know, that thing uh, that I thought was true about collusion. Guys, I, I got that one wrong. You know, not once. How many times have different pundits, analysts, newspapers, you name it, said, oh, you know, Don Jr. is going to go to prison any day now. Oh, it's just a matter of time before the other shoe drops. You know, oh, there's, there, there's, they, they've got him on the Trump Tower thing. They're going to press charge, you know, whatever it is. How many times have we been told this? Wrong, 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 wrong all along. That's what the Democrats have been. That's what their little media lackeys have been. Now, I'm usually somebody who takes the position that being wrong, that having bad judgment on a matter of politics is something that we should leave open to, okay, maybe maybe somebody made a mistake. You know, so so that we, we should leave the door open to people saying, I was wrong, I admit it, and you move on from there. But in this case, given the depth and breadth of the effort to destroy this presidency with an obviously phony narrative, with a phony dossier paid for by the Hillary Clinton DNC, given all the factors that we've seen here and the viciousness with which they have gone after people in Trump's orbit, defamed people that tried to, like me, stand up for the president on this one. I'm sorry, I can't let all of that pass. And so the outlets, places like CNN, that have been responsible for spreading this garbage all this time, they should have to pay a price. And the price is that we don't ever take them seriously again. They should be considered unserious news organizations. Partisan, biased, dishonest. And if you think that that's excessive at this point, Here's a here's a little vignette. You know, CNN has this whole crew of national security experts, they call them. Apparently, if you worked in the federal government and you were an employee of, a, of certain agencies, even if you have no particular knowledge or, or judgment or expertise, they can call you an expert. But a, a lawyer named Vinograd was on CNN. And, and this is the kind of stuff. I mean, this is a perfect example of what we've been hearing Major networks, major, major newspapers saying and writing about the president for two years on this Russia collusion nonsense. This is an example of, of what I'm talking about. Play clip one. His statement makes me sick on a personal level, preserving our heritage, reclaiming our heritage. That sounds a lot like a certain leader that killed members of my family and about six million other uh, Jews in the 1940s. This whole CPAC speech, how many pieces, parts of President Putin's to-do list was President Trump trying to accomplish today? He denigrated our institutions, the Department of Justice and the U.S. Congress. He spread misinformation and conspiracy theories. He undermined the credibility of several of our institutions. He sowed divisions. He sowed confusion. He was speaking to his base, but he was also saying things that really look like Vladimir Putin scripted his speech. That's a national security expert at CNN, folks. That's what they call her. I mean, she's actually an idiot, but a national security expert. Comparing Trump to, I mean, this is the trifecta. Trump is 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 basically Hitler, who killed six million Jews in the Holocaust, uh, doing everything Putin wants him to do, 
Looks like Putin scripted his speech and undermined institutions. I mean, she, she's hitting all the usual BS collusion talking points. Making a fool of herself. And also on her point that Trump mentioning heritage, you know, reminds her of somebody else who talked about heritage, Hitler. Here's somebody that talked about heritage in a public speech. Play clip two. It's time to stand up. It's time to fight back. It's time to reclaim our heritage. And it's time. And we are ready. We are looking for this fight. The future of our country depends on it. Oh, my gosh. Joe Biden said he wants to reclaim our heritage. He's like a he's like Hitler. I don't call people idiots lightly. I mean, I think that there are people that that really do need they do need to be put in check. They do need to be called out because what they're doing is destructive and they're making fools of themselves. There are people on the left that I have respect for, at least on an intellectual level and on a personal level. There are there are plenty of leftists that I like and think are smart. I think they're wrong, but I can I can deal with that. The people that CNN puts on air are dishonest imbeciles to talk about this issue. Dishonest imbeciles. I've put out a a request on Twitter. Got a, getting a bit of attention. I've said, who, who wants to debate Russia collusion with me? Find me a find me a leftist of some with some following and stature. Right? It can't be some guy in some you know living in grandma's basement somewhere. But find me a leftist who's on TV or who has a platform who has been talking about Russia collusion all along, who wants to debate what's really happened here. And what, what's remarkable is I had some, some professor from the University of Who Gives a Crap uh, decided that, who wrote a book called Proof of Collusion. And he's like, I'm not even, I can't debate you on this because to debate your position that, that the Russia collusion is a, is a hoax is like, uh, is like talking to an anti-vaxxer or a you know I think or a flat earther. Uh, okay, so Mueller isn't going to prove collusion. They know it. That's why they're all worried. And by the way, if Mueller was going to prove collusion, trust me, they'd be prepping with CNN and the stories, and they'd all be they're trying to walk away from this thing as quietly as they can in the media. But Mueller can't prove collusion. But this random third-tier professor, he's already proven collusion, you see. And if you disagree with him, you're a flat earther. This is going to be the way that they treat this. Because they can't handle it. The, 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 the recognition that these people who all think they're so smart, oh, all these, oh, how could you not understand that Trump worked with Russia in some plot to steal the emails and that this turned the election and these people are insane, but they think they're so smart. And they understand that unless they do a lot of, you know, figuring out how to, how to, you know, bob and weave here and there, move here, move there, change the narrative, move on to obstruction. You see, that's what they're going to do. Unless they do that, there might be a, a reckoning. People might actually say, why did you get this so wrong? person who thinks that he or she is actually a genius when in reality they're not very bright they're probably middle to middle to uh you know bottom third of the intellectual pack of america like what why did you get this one so wrong how could you have been so wrong all along hmm. they need to avoid that because there are people whose entire their their the credibility of their careers hang in the balance. And there's just the beginning of some recognition here that that's what's going on. So what are they going to do? 
they're going to say that Trump obstructed justice and just shift the investigation and engage in lawfare. Today, they sent out, what was it, 87 different people getting requests for documents from the House Judiciary Committee, which the Democrats now run. I mean, they're just they're going to drown people in paperwork. They're going to ruin people with legal bills. This is what the Democrats, and they're going to call it oversight and use a lot of flowery words about, oh, respecting our Constitution. These people are a nightmare. These Democrats are despicable. They should, if they were honest people, they'd say, wow, maybe, maybe, you know, sure, we can oppose Trump on policy. Maybe this whole Russia thing, maybe we were wrong on this one. Maybe we did get ahead of the facts. It's worth worth thinking about. Oh, no. No, 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 no. That's not what they want to do. That's not where they want to go with this. They're going to say that it's obstruction, you see. I mean, we, we started the show listening to Nadler. Who's not an impressive guy, but he's a he's a political fighter. He's going to try to you know he's going to try to score some hits on the president and his people for sure. Nadler saying that obstruction is the president calling this a witch hunt. So I I just wa- I just now want to be clear. They think if you take someone like Nadler at his word, the Democrats should be able to run a wildly partisan, destructive, out of control, unconstitutional, not founded in any actual crime special counsel, and the president of the United States, who is the target of this ridiculous fraud, the target of this hoax, the president is supposed to be silent, you see, while this is happening. Can't say anything about this investigation because that's obstruction. He's the commander-in-chief. He's supposed to just sit there quietly and take it. If you listen to Nadler, the answer is yes. These people are absolutely off their rockers. Not so. And now, because of enough, oh, Trump is so mean and he's terrible. and all, You know, enough people voted, you know, oh, Trump is so racist and sexist and all these. The Democrats have control in the House. You know, the, the media is a very powerful tool and managed to convince enough people foolishly to give the Democrats power. Look what the Democrats are doing with just a taste of power. A bunch of radical socialist lunatics. And now they're weaponizing the government apparatus against the president of the United States while he's in office under the flimsiest of pretexts after doing this for two years on Russia collusion when they got nothing. I have not yet begun to fight today, my friends. I've got much more for you. Stay with me. The effect of impeachment is to overturn the popular will of the voters. We must not overturn an election and remove a president from office except to defend our system of government or our constitutional liberties against the dire threat. And we must not do so without an overwhelming consensus of the American people. There must never be a narrowly voted impeachment or an impeachment supported by one of our major political parties and opposed by the other. Such an impeachment will produce the divisiveness and bitterness in our politics for years to come and will call into question the very legitimacy of our political institutions. You may have the votes, you may have the muscle, but you do not have the legitimacy of a national consensus or of a constitutional imperative. This partisan coup d'etat will go down in infamy in the history of this nation. Wow. Nadler. Really opposed to impeaching President Trump. Oh, no. That was Jerry Nadler in 1998 when Bill Clinton was on the hot seat. 
So I I just want to know what changed between 1998, when impeachment should not be a partisan tool to overturn the popular will of the voters, and now, when we know that they're they're going to try to slow build up to impeachment, they're essentially going to put Trump's administration through the meat grinder, see what comes out the other side, and then decide, then decide if they're going to go full full force on impeachment, but. This is all supposed to be a constant testing of the waters. They're going to slowly turn up the heat, turn up the heat, see what they're doing. That's going to be the plan. I do think, by the way, they end up impeaching the president. I think that that's where we're heading. Their absolutely unhinged base is going to demand it. There's no way around it. There's not some reasonable Democrat party that all of a sudden is going to come forward. And that's why I think it's it's important we all know that this is what we're up against, folks. They're going to lie. They're going to do whatever they have to do in order to destroy this president and, and to ruin him. And impeachment, even if it is counterproductive for Democrats, they're willing to do it because they want to. I really believe that as well. Usually, politicians, their, their only real interest is self-interest. That's what you see most of the time. But with these Democrats right now, I think a lot of them have taken on hatred for President Trump. They really, really do hate him. Uh, fortunately, we have Trump around who will fight back in this whole process. I like this one. Shifty Schiff. I'd never heard this before. This was at CPAC. Play 17. These people are sick. They're sick. I saw a little Shifty Schiff yesterday. Now, it's the first time he went into a meeting and he said, we're going to look into his finance. I said, where did that come from? He always talked about Russia. Collusion with Russia. The collusion delusion. The collusion delusion is real, folks. It's not going away either. Got more for you on where the Democrats are going to take this in the waning days of the Mueller palooza. Oh, no, you mean St. Muller's not going to give the Democrats the end of the Trump presidency? How will they ever handle it? Unfortunately, they've got plans. I'll tell you what they are on the other side of the break. So now we're waiting for a report and we'll find out whether or not and who we're dealing with. We're waiting for a report by people that weren't elected. And now we have people that lost. And unfortunately... You put the wrong people in a couple of positions and they leave people for a long time that shouldn't be there. And all of a sudden, they're trying to take you out with bullshit. Okay? The notion that Who are you talking about? Which the notion that there's no evidence is just factually wrong. Just in the public domain, there are literally reams and reams of evidence of Russian outreach to Trump officials and clear interest from Trump officials, including the president's own son, welcoming sure. the opportunity to get dirt on Hillary. Circumstantial evidence as opposed to direct evidence is what you well, and think, her go I back and what, forth on that. I think what, one of the things, and I don't claim to be a, a legal expert by any means, uh, but folks who I've talked to have been in the prosecutorial business have said, you know, when you're looking at conspiracies, it is almost always based upon a, a pattern of circumstantial evidence. Crazy. Okay. These people are absolutely out of their minds. And it's because their reputations hang in the balance and they know that. Their power is at risk here. 
Because if nobody believes them anymore, how are they going to stay in power? How are they going to be important? That was Senator Mark Warner, obviously following up after Trump. is just like, these people are, are, are just completely full of it. And Trump is right. But Senator Mark Warner there, this is a novel approach. Oh, collusion has already been proven. What? There's already proof of collusion. Where? I'm sorry, taking a meeting with a Russian person who says that she has, uh, she has information that would be damaging to Hillary Clinton... You, you think that's collusion? I, I, I need to understand that, because, by the way, if that's collusion, then what has the Mueller probe been doing all this time? No information was exchanged at this meeting. Let, let, let's change the characters a little bit here. So you're going to tell me that if the Hillary Clinton campaign had a, oh, I don't know, a British guy approach them who, remember, that's a foreigner, I know, oh, Russia is supposed to scare us so much. Brits are foreigners too. British guy approached them and he's like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm an investigative journalist and uh, I've got some incredible information on Donald Trump that's going to sink his candidacy. Are, are, are they, they, they're going to not take that meeting if they have some, you know, basic, or, you know, no one's going to take that meeting in the Hillary Clinton campaign? Are, are, do they think we're all morons? I guess they do. They're wrong, but they must believe this. Because, I mean, this is pathetic. We're, we're back to the Trump Tower meeting where no information was exchanged and nothing happened. And when you look also at the connections that Veselnitskaya, this Russian woman, has, you know, you know, her background, it looks like a setup. The whole thing looks like a setup. She's going to show up to this meeting, a setup against the Trump campaign. She's going to set up in this, uh, sit in this meeting, doesn't have any information on Hillary. And going to claim she also wanted to talk about the Magnitsky Act. I think Fusion GPS or Perkins Coie, you know, one of them was, I forget what it is. You know, it's tough to keep all this stuff straight. They were involved in trying to get uh, lobby. I think it was Perkins Coie trying to get rid of the, the Magnitsky Act. I forget. Some One of them was. But there's some shady stuff in, in her, you know, that, that goes to her motivations for this meeting. But that's the collusion? Well, here's, here's a surprise from Mark Warner. I don't give a crap about that meeting. I don't think it was, I mean, it might have been unwise to take under the circumstances because there was nothing that happened and it opened them up to all this lunacy, but nothing happened and who cares? And under the circumstances, I can understand why somebody would have taken the meeting. They keep saying, oh, Veselinskaya with ties to Russia. Everybody has ties to Russian intelligence. Everybody in Russia has an uncle named Yuri that knows somebody that knows somebody who's in the FSB. You know, I mean, this, this ties to Russian intelligence. They, they, they didn't sit down and, and have a meeting, you know, with, with the Russian ambassador for opposition information. And I think it's fair to ask, that's not criminal either. So what exactly? Someone needs to explain to me. Mark Warner, see, they never debate this stuff in the open. And that's why this has been so damaging to the credibility of the media. None of these people ever subject themselves to opposing points of view. None of them will ever allow themselves to be cross-examined on this stuff. So, so Mark Warner, Senator Mark Warner of Virginia, explain to me this. Riddle me this, Chief. Taking a meeting with a Russian to find out if there's opposition information about Hillary Clinton or her campaign, that is a horrible, unpardonable sin. But paying through a cutout, officially your campaign, paying through a cutout, a foreigner... Christopher Steele, to use foreign sources, Russians, to compile a completely BS dossier 
that you then, using Democrat allies in the government apparatus, launder through the intelligence community to get FISA warrants started to spy on the campaign and Americans who had done nothing wrong, you think that's not a problem? I mean, do you think he has an answer? Oh, but, but you know, but, you know, Brennan and, and, and Comey and these are the great Americans. No, they're not. These people are clowns. They are partisans. They were drunk with their own power. They thought they were this special praetorian guard for the federal bureaucracy here in D.C. And they got caught with their hands in the cookie jar. And their reputations have taken the hits that they deserve. They should be thought of as the partisan hacks that they are. Comey, McCabe, Strzok, Page, Brennan, Clapper. Go down the list. All of them. Yates. All of them. Oh, but they were in senior government positions. Like that's supposed to mean something to me. I don't care. Having a senior government position doesn't mean you're beyond Never mind criticism, you're, you're beyond prosecution, you're beyond the ethical boundaries that the rest of us would expect. Of course not. There are corrupt kings stretching back for as far as there have been kings. I mean, this notion that, well, you know, James Comey was such an honest fellow and, you know, the, the FISA process, they would never abuse that. Oh, oh, okay. See, I was in the CIA when the libs hated it. And all I ever heard about was torture and, and, and rendition and all these terrible things. That's all the libs are talking about, how terrible. And they, and they wanted to prosecute. They wanted to prosecute some of my colleagues. Send them to prison for fighting the war on terror. Now, you can agree or disagree with whether or not their tactics are right or wrong, but let's not pretend that libs think that just because you have a senior position in a national security organization of the government that y- you can't have you know, made a made a big mistake. I mean, Mark Warner, you know, Mark Warner was on Meet the Press, so obviously he won't get any real pushback from uh, from Chuck Todd um, because they're all in on this. This has been great. They, they've, by the way, they have monetized this. I think you need to remember that too. Not only have the Democrats been using this in order to try to stop Trump's presidency, because if Trump had been allowed to do what he wanted to do without this investigation because this is really cheating i mean this is not this is not political opposition this is not making this is dirty tricks underhanded stuff you know this is like yeah sure we had a vote but you know we were burning some of the ballots that we didn't like you know that that's not democracy right that's not what's supposed to happen here so when you look now at what they've done, they've been able to slow down this president. They've been able to scare away a lot of good people from working for the administration, all of us. And many of them have made themselves richer and more famous in the process. I mean, you know, Jim Acosta has created a brand of just being a overly hairsprayed idiot who makes a mockery of himself in his hashtag resistance moments in front of the administration because he's a journo. Oh, all these journalists. Oh, it's so scary to be a journalist in America. You know, I mean, every death is a tragedy, folks, but there have been like five journalists killed on on the job in the last 30 years, 30 years. Basically, as long as I've been alive, there have been five journalists killed in America. But oh, my gosh, Trump is terrifying all the journalists. It's so scary to be a journalist now. 
These people have absolutely no shame. And they're going to insist on avoiding accountability in every way that they can. And they're going to move on to this additional fairy tale of, of obstruction. Let's think about this for a moment. I mean, you have congressmen who are already saying that Trump opposing the investigation of him and those around him and saying that he does not agree with it. Is he supposed to say he does agree with it? I mean, is, this is really, you know, we're going we're gonna to put the witch out in the middle of the lake. We're going to tie rocks to her. If she drowns, then we know that, you know, if, if, if she drowns, then clearly she's innocent. And, and if she doesn't drown, well, then she's a witch and then we'll have to burn her at the stake. Thanks. Right. What, what is Trump supposed to say here? You're right. I've been guilty all along. You got me. Oh, no, he's not guilty. So that's what he's been telling people. And yet that alone is used as some kind of evidence of wrong. I mean, this it, it has been exhausting, hasn't it? And now that we're getting now that we're getting close to not even really the truth, because the truth would be McCabe federally prosecuted for lying, Comey prosecuted for official misconduct. I mean, you know, the truth would be Hillary prosecuted. Yeah, that's right. Hillary prosecuted for violating the Espionage Act over 100 times. That's what that's what real justice would look like. I'm not saying we're going to get justice. Because we know in this country, unfortunately, there are two tiered. There's a two tiered justice system, one for Democrats and one for Republicans. But at least we will be approaching the end of this collusion nightmare and all the nonsense around it from the Mueller probe perspective. And the Democrats are going to act like nothing has happened. Nothing changes. The plan is still the same. That's what they're going to do. They're going to now run additional investigations as though they could find out between now and Election Day what Mueller was team of democrat seasoned vicious prosecutors by the way i mean these are these are people that did not give anyone an inch nobody got the benefit of the doubt with these guys that was a republican where's tony podesta by the way you know the guy that's tied to clinton close confidant john podesta guy ran clinton's campaign remember how he was involved in lobbying overseas same organizations that manafort do do we where's his pharaoh registration charge I could go through this all day. General Flynn gets charged for lying about a non-crime. Why shouldn't FBI Acting Director McCabe get charged for lying about misconduct while in office? Anyone want to try to answer that one for me? How many times do we have to see this disparity? It's despicable. It's despicable, but they, they don't plan on changing anything here. They, they are digging in. And they are doubling down. And it's 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 obviously very, very troubling. Um, but we need to understand that we have to continue to fight because even when this Mueller probe finally comes to a conclusion, um, they're not going to stop. Trey Gowdy, by the way, has said that, you know, uh, this is just all, you know, like, we all know this, right? It's all politics. So let's hear from Trey. Play five. Remember when Nadler and Schiff didn't want to interfere with ongoing investigations? Does anybody remember that? Uh, they, they no longer have that concern. So this is all about 2020, um, and they can ask for it, but the president's got really smart lawyers, and I'd be shocked if they produced it. 
Well, they sent out today 87 requests for. I mean, they're just gonna they're gonna flood the zone with investigative requests. They're gonna flood the zone with legal bills for everybody around Trump. These people, it's all just sore loserism about Hillary in 2016 for a lot of them. Got to remember this, and this includes people like Comey too. They were expecting eight glorious years of being close to the decrepit part of power that was going to be the Clinton administration. That's what they thought they were owed. A lot of people had to pretend that Hillary was likable, that Hillary wasn't a an, a, a sociopathic grasper, a greedy, lying, manipulative. I mean, you know, they all had to sort of just pretend. But the point was they were going to get eight years of Queen Hillary. You know, yay, Queen. And they were going to get all the all the trappings of power and wealth that came along with it. And then Trump stole it from them. And they're not going to let that go because now who knows the next Democrat nominee is going to be. Even if 2020 works out for the Democrats, which I don't think it will, there are a lot of left-wing Democrats, or I should say, pardon me, not left-wing, a lot of establishment Democrats who cannot, will not forgive what they feel was stolen from them. Because you see, they're really important people. They're really powerful. They're the kind of people that go on TV and say, collusion's already been proven, you, you idiot. How do you not know? Yeah, those people. They're not going to change anything. We'll be right back. So while he's talking collusion, 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 I think in oversight, we should be talking about taxes, 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 and his bank account, his bank account, his bank account, his financial statements, 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 um, because that's where I think actually some of the most troubling practices are with direct relevance to the American people uh, under the scope of oversight. The good news for us is that uh, AOC there, Ocasio-Cortez, is, is too dumb to hide the plan. And the plan is, although it is obvious what the plan is, to be fair, um, to essentially engage in an IRS-style all-in audit of everything the president has ever done. All of his personal finances, all of his bank accounts, everything. Just investigate him. I mean, when he was a private individual, it doesn't matter. Just investigate everything. Now, what I would want to point out is that the people that are telling you and have been telling you for two years now, oh, my gosh, Trump is undermining our institutions. How can any American have any faith in Congress as an institution, in our government right now as an institution, if the response that we're going to see from elected officials when they don't agree with someone is to just just conduct a fishing expedition of everything in their life? And now you might say, Buck, that's what politics is. Uh, no, no, no. I'm talking about using subpoena power, the law. I'm talking about the use of the force of government to pry into someone's life. Never mind the, you know, we, they've already tried everything. They already tried their October surprise with the Billy Bush tape and all that. They've done all that. We've already been through all that. Now it's going to be seize his records, seize his bank account, seize his taxes. And we all know those are going to get leaked, right? We all know it. This is the way the Democrats play the game. It's dirty, but they're, you have to remember, they're zealots. They are radicals now. The Democrats have radicalized as a party, and that's why what would stop normal people from acting in this way won't stop them, because they think that they are on a mission from Gaia or you know Mother Earth or whatever they pray to. Um, we've got more coming up, team. Stay with me. It is really tough to hire people. You got a tight turnaround, the deadline, you got to get it done. You don't want to 
lose out by not having somebody in that necessary role. When we were hiring the best people in the business for Hill TV, what did I do? ZipRecruiter. And that's what you should do too. ZipRecruiter.com slash buck lets you go right to it and you won't waste time because ZipRecruiter has powerful matching technology that's going to scan thousands of resumes for you and will send your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. And as an application comes in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates. You'll never miss a great match. I've got fantastic colleagues today that we found using my ZipRecruiter account. My listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. ZipRecruiter.com slash buck because ZipRecruiter is simply the smartest way to hire. And when I look at what's happening on the other side, I encourage it. I say, no, no, I, I think the New Green Deal, or whatever the hell they call it. The Green New Deal, right? Green New Deal. I encourage it. I think, the, I think it's really something that they should promote. It is something that we should laugh at, although we also have to take it seriously. It is worthy of mockery, but just because you mock something does not mean that it can't be a problem, right? In fact, I think that satire and mockery are very important, very potent and necessary political weapons. Uh, but I would also say that, you know, we need, to, we, we need to have fun while we talk about the Green New Deal, but we need to be aware that this could become our reality much more quickly than I think a lot of folks realize um, because it is a, it is a cult, and I, and I really mean that. I mean, this is not a normal... People are not normal when they talk about the Green New Deal. They do not approach this from the perspective of, let's have a rational discussion. It's, why don't you want the, the Earth to survive? I mean, they completely freak out. And they lie about it a lot. But be, before I get to the freak-out chorus on the Green New Deal, uh, we should at least establish that this is where you see the Democrats... Embracing socialism really across the board. Every major Democrat candidate for president right now has signed on for the Green New Deal. Every single one of them. The Green New Deal is socialism. Make no mistake about it. That is what the Green New Deal is. And Kirsten Gillibrand, who is a big fake, a phony, and a liar, uh, she she can say as much as she wants about this. Well, she doesn't really know very much about anything, but uh, she is, is now claiming that the Green New Deal is something Republicans can go for. I mean, I don't know if she's not not smart or delusional or what, but play clip 11. So you think there's common ground on a Green New Deal and Medicare for all? You think you can get Republican votes for that? Yes. You just me, modern Republican Can I tell you why? Because yeah. I believe it. So the Green New Deal is three things. These are not new ideas. It is infrastructure, which is widely bipartisan. More money for mass transit, more money for electric grids, more money for um, rural water supplies, roads, bridges, everything. The second piece of the Green New Deal is jobs. It's all about training people to do wind, solar, geothermal, hydropower, biofuels. And we do that in New York. I mean, the Green New Deal, if it's going to involve infrastructure spending that the Green New Deal would be okay with, is going to be the biggest waste of money, the biggest boondoggle, uh, the biggest fraud of a public works project in the history of the planet. And keep in mind that if we were to really take these people seriously and do what they want us to do, 
without a replacement for uh, for fossil fuels in our economy, which we do not have, not only would the economy screech to a halt, you would also have people starving. I mean, fossil fuels are necessary for the production of food, for the transport of food. I mean, the the level of catastrophe that we would have to endure to go to a net zero carbon emission society is astonishing. It's the kind of thing that only a zealot, that only a radical could push for, but that's what they're doing. And I think that it's important that everyone understand what we're up against here. The Green New Deal is a religion of the left. These are people who want to inflict themselves. Remember, it's not religious belief in the sense that this is their spirituality that's private, that's personal, that guides their own lives. In fact, one of the defining characteristics of the Green New Deal is the hypocrisy of the high priests and priestesses of it. As we see from Ocasio-Cortez in the New York Post piece on her that says that, you know, she's a, her headquarters is real close to a subway. It doesn't take the subway. spends a lot of money on Ubers and flies instead of takes the train from New York to D.C. whenever she can. So, you know, she's not talking the talk and walking the walk. Or maybe she's talking the talk, but she's not walking the, you know what I mean. Well, however, that guy, fool me once, can't get fooled again. You know what I'm saying. Uh, but this is, a, this is a, a left-wing religious belief, and there is no room for heresy. You will be made to believe, too. You will be made to live under the mandates of these Green New Deal high priests and priestesses, too. That's what makes this so, uh, so aggressive and so problematic for all the rest of us. If, you know, it's one thing for, like, think of this like vegans. Vegans can be pretty radical. Um, vegans can be pretty intense. I'm not saying all of them. If they're, you're a vegan listening to the show, I'm not necessarily telling Some of you just think it's healthy and that's cool. And look, I got no problem with vegans. People want to eat what they want to eat. That's fine. You know, I probably eat too much high fat and cheese and things like that. You know, everyone, you know, these, these are our own personal choices. But imagine a vegan who came into, oh, you know who's a vegan? Cory Booker. That's all you need to know about him. That's all you need to know. Can't, can't, can't trust him. Uh, guy, guys like, oh, I can't eat bacon, and I can't can't trust them. Uh, but imagine a vegan that said that you have to live the same lifestyle that they do. That is kind of like the Green New Deal people, except they don't want to live a vegan lifestyle. They just want you to live a vegan lifestyle. That's right. They want to take the steak out of your mouth while they're sitting there chomping on a ribeye right in front of you. No, I'm not a violent man, but that might push even the most even-tempered of us to take matters into their own hands. You take the ribeye out of my mouth and you eat it in front of me, we're going to have problems. But that's, imagine the, the, the kind of extremism and, and evangelism of a vegan, but they're not going to actually do it. Only you get to live that lifestyle. That's what the Green New Deal is. That's how this is, is so different. And if you have any doubts about whether this is, it's fair to call this a a religious belief, remember there are there are, there's all kinds of you know Satanism is a religious belief, you know the Thuggy cult of India was a religious belief. There's a lot of religious beliefs out there. Right? Just because something's a religion doesn't mean that we have, that's another fallacy. Just because it's a religion, I have to respect it. False. I do not I do not have to respect it just because it's a religion. Because if that were the case, 
The Church of the Flying Pastafarian or the Flying Spaghetti Strainer or whatever it is, I'd have to respect that religion too, and I don't. But in case you had any doubts, you are now seeing an increase in these uh, these movements of people and, and just seeing more public commentary from people who are saying that they're so afraid, they're so afraid of what the future holds because of climate change hysteria that they won't even have kids. Play clip 21. Our planet is in a kind of collapse. The natural world is collapsing around us, and that's actually happening right now. Um, and I'm so disappointed by um, the response by our authorities to this crisis, um, and so freaked out by it. Um, everything that I've read, um, that I've, I've basically last year I came to the decision that I couldn't bring a child into that. And you have come to the same conclusion, Alice? Yeah, I have. I'm, um, I mean, each day for me is, is a struggle. I, re I really do just, I'm so depressed. And that has led to um, just a fear that I've never felt before. And, and my decision for being on birth strike mostly has come from not wanting to pass that fear on to someone else. If, if we're in this situation now, you know, even since my parents had me, we've destroyed 60% of of life on this planet, what would that be like when my child's my age? Will there be 10% left? That's not just to do with being, um, you know, a nature wildlife enthusiast like I am. That's actually, that's dangerous mm. as well. Yeah, it's like, I can't bring kids into the world because, you know, climate change and we're losing all these species. And if we don't have an ample supply of Delta smelt in their natural habitat, in the Simi Valley of California, I just feel like, like it's just not worth it anymore. Yeah. So I needed 4,000 brown M&Ms or Rosie wouldn't go on stage that night. I managed to take care of the tiger with a can of mace, but the shopkeeper and her son was a different story altogether. All right, I'm sorry. So, but those people are crazy, right? I mean, they're, they're actually nuts. I can't have a baby. I'm on birth strike. I've never even heard of that before. Birth strike? They're, they're on birth strike because of the Green New Deal? Because of, of how dangerous the world is going to be? Going, I'm sorry, because of the lack of a Green New Deal. Because of how dangerous the world's going to be because of climate change? Really? These are adults, folks. These are people that, at least ostensibly, can read and write and think. And not only are they... Truly, some of them. I mean, I do believe that a lot of them, uh, this is just a political mobilization tool. It's classic Alinsky. Once you mobilize a people on pollution, then you have them to mobilize on corruption. Then you have to mobilize them on racism. You know, once you get people all riled up about one thing, it's very easy to move them on to another thing. And so this is essentially a mobilization tactic. But the Green New Deal is really at its core for those who are the high priests and priestesses. I don't think they really, I don't think they're the true believers. The true believers are those women who are like, yeah, it's just, you know, I just don't want to have a baby because it's like one degree centigrade. It might be like 1.2 degree centigrade in a hundred years. And what will my child think if it's 0.2 degree centigrade warmer on a global average based on incredibly inaccurate data of measuring global temperature. My child just couldn't handle it, right? And plus, he'll be like really old. Like, he'll be like 100, and he'll be very warm all the time. 
right? I mean, you know, she's got a point there, right? But the high priests and priestesses of climate change, they, they don't view this really as saving the planet. They view this as controlling the planet. The Green New Deal is all about the implementation of socialism and control. The Green New Deal is not at its core for the people that are running it. For the people. It's like the Communist Party, right? Think about the Communist Party and the Soviet Union. Were there some true believers? You know, was, was uh, well, Trotsky was, but that's why they put an ice axe in his head. Uh, you know, Lenin, I mean, were they true believers? Yeah. But were most of the, of the Politburo early on really just people that realized that they were in the power loop and that they just needed to keep this thing going to keep the con going? Yup. That's what the Green New Deal is. It's really about control. And people would argue that a lot of religions are about control. Now, that's actually been at the heart of much of a religious belief for a very long time. And now we're getting into a deeper theological conversation than I had intended. Uh, but in this case, in this instance, they are emotionalizing the topic with religious fervor of, of climate change hysteria. People are convinced they shouldn't have babies. People are convinced that they should tell 10-year-olds the world's going to end in 10 years or 12 years. And if you, by the way, SNL, you know I rarely give an SNL shout out. The Diane Feinstein clip they did on SNL is actually pretty funny. So I would recommend you go check it out. It's on YouTube. Just you type in a search for it. Uh, but they're terrifying small children. They are willing to destroy our economy, but they will be in control. And they know that that is ultimately the single most important thing to them because control is power. Control is just a form of power. So if you are a power obsessed lib, the best way to get the society you want that will be full on socialism without calling it that. Just get this Green New Deal in action. When do you want to spot that burglar? When he's casing your home or after he's in? Ask John, whose blink camera alerted him to burglars trying to break in while he and his family were home. Or Shannon, whose blink camera caught a thief stealing packages. Both times, blink video clips were sent to police to help convict the crooks. And in a moment, I'll tell you how to get 20% off all Blink Outdoor XD camera systems. Blink motion-activated indoor and outdoor cameras are wire-free. They set up in minutes and run on two lithium batteries that last up to two years. And Blink's live feed option lets you monitor your home and check in on kids and pets from anywhere using your Blink smartphone app. No contracts, no subscriptions, totally affordable. And right now, Blink Outdoor XT camera systems are an impressive 20% off. But hurry, this sale ends March 16th at midnight Eastern. Visit BlinkProtect.com slash sale. BlinkProtect.com slash sale. Again, BlinkProtect.com slash sale. This is a time, my friends, when fundamental rights, civic virtue, freedom of the press, the rule of law, truth, facts, and reason are under assault. Hello? Did you miss me? Hillary's back. Back and as charming as ever. I don't know what, what it's going to take for Hillary to step out of the public eye. Oh, she, she, she can't. She can't help herself. I will say I'm a little disappointed because there was a, there was a time, and I, I said it on the show many times, there was a time when I... Really did I really did believe that Hillary Clinton was going to run again? And I, I'm I'm I will admit when I'm wrong, folks. Hello, I will admit when I'm wrong, and 
I think that Hillary is this time. I think she's probably not running. That's right. All right. Maybe she's not running. Fine. I might have gotten I might have gotten this one wrong. Um, I might have gotten this one wrong. But Hillary's still going to be out there. So don't think that you're going to have a Hillary free 2020 because she's going to she's going to be a surrogate. She can't help herself. She has to be near the near the spotlight in some capacity. Oh, wait, wait. I I forgot to get to this. Uh, Maisie Hirono, I think the dumbest person in the Senate. Right. I, I give her that. I give her that title. I, there are some others that are very close. It's a tough call. But I think Maisie Hirono is, in fact, the dumbest person in the Senate. Um, she had some thoughts on climate change, too. Play clip 19. Can tell me what you were saying uh, well, in terms asked of travel me, uh, about whether we were trying to get rid of uh, air travel. And I said, well, that's going to make it hard for Hawaii. But the, what, what the Green New Deal stands for is the, a recognition that climate change is happening, not sticking our head in the sand. So what's really crazy is Trump and all his minions and his ilk who think that global warming and, and climate change is not happening and they'd rather just stick their heads in the sand. They offer absolutely zero in terms of what they would propose. So all they can do is mock and attack. And I think that is a crazy position because they are denying the science behind climate change. Yeah, we mock and attack it because it should be mocked and attacked because it's idiocy. I just want to note that, you know, Senator Hirono I I think that she really, you know, she she's uh she really came through here, folks. She really did. Because if you recall when the Green New Deal was init- initially came out, Maisie Hirono was the one who got a little bit of attention for saying, well, if we eliminate air travel, that will make things hard for Hawaii, right? She said that. And it was one of these, you know, broken clock right twice a day scenarios where you go, "Whoa. Look at Maisie Hirono." Smarter than Ocasio Cortez, right? She she understands something that apparently a a leading luminary of sorts on the left does not understand. And yeah, but then, but then she decided to walk it back a little bit. Then she decided, sure enough, that she had given a little help to the Republicans by being sane for a moment, by accident, nonetheless. And she just wanted to know. Oh no no no! Senator Senator Hirono is in fact a straight up idiot, and and she regrets that moment where she said something accidentally that was insightful or intelligent, and she would like the left and the Democrats to know that she is still a full a full on imbecile and does not have anything to add to this discussion worthwhile at all. Opposing the Green New Deal is not crazy. What's crazy is is uh, or rather the Green New Deal is not crazy. Oppos- opposing it is. So so there's so there's that. Speaking of one thing, you know, I, I will miss this back to the Hillary thing for a moment that we will not have the Trumpster going full on mockery of Hillary, which which would have been great. But at least we will have the Trumpster mocking Elizabeth Warren, who so very, very richly deserves it. Play This was him at CPAC. Play 20. I should have saved the Pocahontas thing for another year. Because I've destroyed her political career and now I won't get a chance to run against her and I would have loved it. We gotta, you know, I don't wanna knock out all of the good stuff and end up with somebody that's actually got talent. That would be terrible. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the Trumpster's got a point here. He, he has single handedly uh, forced Elizabeth Warren or, or brought Elizabeth Warren to just 
take her political her political chances, the presidency, and essentially light them on fire just because she was so rattled by Trump messing with her. So it's one of Trump's magic. It's one of Trump's superpowers, folks. He really gets under Lib's skin. Let's talk about rent control, shall we? Now, hold on a second. Don't don't even think about skipping past this segment because you're like, oh, Buck, I don't have rent control in my area. Or I don't really care. Rent control is becoming a more popular idea. It's usually associated with New York City, which is why I know quite a bit about it, including from friends of mine who have rent-controlled apartments. But now we have whole states, whole states that are thinking about going rent-controlled in terms of housing. And this is one of these moments where we can really look at what progressives are proposing and doing what government intervention does. You know, this is a rubber meets the road moment for why conservatives are right and liberals are wrong on on an issue of economics that really affects people's lives. All right. And that's what that this piece by Mark Hemingway is a great writer. It's in the Wall Street Journal. Oregon's progressive politicians want rent control for all is really an interesting read uh, because this is the first time, as I mentioned, Oregon is going to be the first state to have statewide rent control. Now, what that what that means in this context is that there can only be a certain a certain cap on on rent, uh, a certain cap on rent that you can't go above as somebody who is a uh, a landlord. Now, this is in response to rising prices. So see, and this is this is a perfect think about how this this works in this case and apply it to so many other things that libs do right they they see a problem they don't think about what's caused the problem and their immediate knee-jerk reaction is to try and fix the problem with government mandates with government intervention community organizers agitators left-wing groups all this stuff they all start picketing and saying it's not fair we need more housing it's not fair you know they do all this stuff Instead of saying, well, hold on a second. Why does Portland, for example, have the highest, I'm sorry, the second highest rent increase on average in uh, in 2016 and 2017? Why did it have the second highest rent of any city in the country after Seattle? Why is there such a housing shortage, right? This is basic economics. This is supply and demand. Why does Portland have a housing shortage, folks? That's the real question. This is where the economics should kick in. Now, what liberals do is they come at this from the other side. They come at it and they say, well, hold on a second. Housing is too expensive. So let's just make housing less expensive. Let's just mandate that you can't charge as much. And this is not going to make the problem any better. In fact, this is going to make it worse, as we all know. But libs never learn their lessons. Let's take a step back. Why does the state of Oregon have, overall, but in particular Portland, uh, but why does it have these problems? Well, because of policies instituted by the government, quote, smart growth policies back in the 1970s that put urban growth boundaries around cities in an effort to stop them from having what is called urban sprawl. So what this means is that they look at a city and these are city planners, which, by the way, is a form of central planning. 
They have these city planners who come who come together and they say, well, we don't want the city of such and such to be any bigger than this. And they draw lines on a map. And outside of those lines, you cannot zone for certain kinds of development. So, for example, you can't build outside those those uh, those lines a tall apartment building that would be cost effective. You could only maybe do, you know, farming communes or maybe build a single family home or whatever it is. But they are intruding on the market because they don't like urban sprawl. This was just a thing in the 1970s, which a lot of people say, isn't that just natural growth of a city? But they don't like urban sprawl. So that led to in Portland in particular, there being disparities because where you are on the urban sprawl line could be the difference between, as Hemingway points out in his piece here, whether your property is worth $180,000 for an acre or across the street, folks, based on where these lines were drawn, across the street, $16,000 an acre. How, how could the same neighborhood have such a, you know, is one of them a toxic waste dump? No. One of them is a place where you can develop land and another one is a place where you can't because they don't want urban sprawl. So this means that developers, guess what? Developers don't want to come in and deal with this. There's also a lot of red tape on top of it where you have a lot of expense that's put on top of building apartments and homes in a city like Oregon that are just bureaucratic expenses. This is from this piece. Systems and development charges and permit fees for even a 500-square-foot unit in the city of Eugene, Oregon, are close to about $20,000 per unit. That's just all red tape expense. That's just, you know, the the city inspectors coming in and got to do this and got to do that and just people getting involved in this that are extraneous and, in fact, just drive up the prices, just make it harder for people to be able to um, get housing because this is affordability is a function of the market. Affordability is not, in fact, something that you will achieve with government mandates. And as I've told you before, and this is I'm not saying that Portland's going to turn into Venezuela or, you know, Eugene, Oregon or uh, Tacoma, Washington or any of these places. I'm not saying that. But price controls were one of the primary mechanisms instituted in Venezuela to create the descent into a failed state economic catastrophe and all the chaos we see. The price controls in Venezuela were pretty straightforward. There's not enough of X product. Let's call it, let's say uh, microwaves. There aren't enough microwaves for everybody in Venezuela to go around right now. So instead of trying to deal with that through a market incentives, what they did, or, or by liberalizing their markets or lowering tariffs on the product or whatever it may be, they said, well, now you can only charge $100. Well, that's actually a pretty expensive microwave, but whatever. You can only charge $20 for your microwave. Well, guess what? The people making microwaves can't make any money. So what do they do? They stop importing microwaves. That's what's happening with housing in a rent-controlled environment. They're driving up the cost with mandates, and then they mandate that the costs get dr driven down. This is straight out of the road to serfdom, baby. This is Hayek coming at you with all the truth. 
What does Hayek say in The Road to Serfdom? Every government intrusion is going to be followed by more government intrusions because they create uh, they create dislocations of, of capital and sound investment. And then the, the response to that from the people that did it in the first place is always going to be, oh, well, let's fix that with more dislocations of capital and unsound investment. That's what happens. That's what gets done. And then you add on to this, the lack of, because remember, affordable housing, folks, you're going to hear it a lot from Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez and all these, you know, you're a lot of affordable housing talk. A lot of that going on. You know, and all that's going to mean is the government either subsidizing uh, developers, which just means the tax dollars are going to this, or it's going to mean that they institute rent control policies. Rent control in New York drives up prices for everybody who is not covered by rent control. But in New York, the problem is that there are all these, there's, there's a million people in New York City who are directly affected, meaning they or one of their family members is in a rent-controlled unit of some kind. And so when you try to change that, if you're in the New York City in New York City Council, guess what? you got a million people that'll show up and make sure you lose. They are single, because housing is so expensive in New York City, they're single-issue voters on rent control, but that's just cronyism, folks. It's just cronyism. It's just people that are getting something that they're not entitled to that are defending it through the political process, but that's what cronies do. You're going to see more of this. But see, see, it, it's a perfect illustration of how the left does not understand the root cause of a problem and, in fact, just makes it worse. Uh, they make the problems worse. Oh, by the way, as if that wasn't enough, there are left-wing activist groups that make this a function of who wants, who wants to guess? Remember, in Venezuela, they do price controls. And then what's the, what's the way that they... Uh, they they double down on this. Oh, that's right. That's right. Social justice. Social justice. That's what they are trying to accomplish here. Uh, go back to this piece in the Wall Street Journal by Mark Hemingway. Quote, rather than address the lack of housing supply, legislators have seized on rent control and feisty left-wing groups like Portland Tenants United dominate grassroots politics in Oregon. Over the past few years, the group's divisive founder, a professor named Margot Black, has become a political force. PTU has organized rent strikes and picket lines against landlords seeking rent increases and pushed the legislature to adopt drastic rent controls. Homegrown Oregonians tend to be white and racist, she said during a 2017 television interview. I think the faster they can get out of the landlord business, the better. The PTU imploded last year in parodic fashion. Ms. Black was forced to step down as a leader of the group for allowing, among other things, a PTU organizer to sing This Land is Our Land over the objection of the group's Native American racial equity trainer. <laughs> While that might seem absurd, PTU's persistent agitation is largely responsible for making rent control a dominant issue in Portland politics. Uh, folks, this is what happens. This is a microcosm of progressive urban politics at work. What do they do? They create a problem with government regulation. They try to address the problem with government price controls, more mandates. And then when that doesn't work, they just say 
It's the bad, greedy people responding to these government incentives in rational fashion. They're the problem. And you know what happens then? The builders, the developers, they say, I'm going to spend my money elsewhere. I don't want to deal with this madhouse in Portland. And housing is even more in short supply. It's like the anatomy of the left on economics here in one in one fell swoop. So see, it tells you a lot about how the left thinks. I hope you enjoyed our little foray into Portland and Eugene and other places in Oregon and their real estate situation. We'll be right back. So I think I have a long history uh, in civil rights activism. In 1988, I was one of the few white public officials who supported Jesse Jackson uh, for president of the United States, and he ended up winning Vermont. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think if you look at my uh, record in terms of civil rights uh, and other areas, you will find that it is uh, consistently a very, very strong record. Any legislation we can point to? Well, legislation that uh, Uh, benefits uh, African Americans, uh, yeah, but not specifically, you know, that's legislation that benefits working people, sure. Oh, but, but, uh, you know, I'm I'm a civil rights hero. But I didn't actually pass any legislation. Uh, just, you know, I want to talk about social justice. And, you know, Bernie gets away with a lot because he comes across as this somewhat likable, kooky professor guy from New York, even though he's not a professor. He's been a guy living off the public public dime for his entire adult life. Um, but he's really not very impressive. I watched, and we didn't really pull any audio from it because it was all the same, you know, the millionaires and the billionaires are going to pay for this and they're going to pay for that and we're going to have free college like every industrialized country in the world. We're going to have great health care. You're going to have no more debt. You're going to have unicorns and magic plum fairies giving you all the sweet treats you want. I mean, it's the usual thing. A lot of also how Trump is, I, I thought it was interesting, he said that Trump is divisive. And, and Trump is the guy who's separating people. Meanwhile, the Democrats' whole platform is based on intersectionality, which is just how you assess and how you rank and, and handle different groups that oppress each other. I mean, that is what intersectionality is. But Democrats accuse us of, or rather Trump, of being the divisive one. I, I think that's kind of rich. Um uh, But, you know, Bernie Sanders, I think right now, if you had to say who's going to be the nominee, a lot of people would put their money on Sanders. A lot of people would say that Sanders is going to come through this Democratic, which is already, what is it now? It's at 12 candidates already, I think. I mean, it's crazy how many candidates there are in the Democrat Party right now. It's just crazy. A lot of them are just complete, you know, nothing burger candidates as well. Uh, I saw this guy today, uh, John Hickenlooper from... Colorado. I, I would say I haven't really, haven't really, uh, you know, heard of this guy much before. And I was like, where have I heard about him? The biggest knock on him, from what I understand, is that he's not a total communist and is and can be somewhat reasonable. And everyone's like, whoa, you can't win a Democratic primary if you're going to be in any way reasonable or normal. But then I realized that the, the most famous thing about him is that he he likes to pull this this trick where he'll drink water to prove that something is is clean. He drink uh, he drank fracking fluid back in 2013 to show that it was safer than the critics were saying. 
But he also, after a major environmental disaster on the Animas River, he drank a, uh, a bottle of water from the river. But turns out he put a water purification tablet in it beforehand and waited 30 minutes for that to take effect. So... I don't know about that one, buddy. I don't know if we can give you the uh, give you a pass on that. Um, and then, of course, you got the other one, the other great hope of the Democrats, Joe Biden. Joe Biden and Trump's already got his number, so I'm not worried. But Joe Biden's a total mediocrity. All right, nothing about him is impressive. Nothing about him is inspiring. Uh, he's just a, a classic Democrat machine politician, and there's just he's just got nothing. I mean, you know, and without the media running cover for all these stupid comments, you know, I, I don't think that you're going to have uh, the same ability for him to just pretend like, oh, that's just Joe being Joe. But I see today the New York Post is, is saying that, you know, who, who might run if Biden doesn't run? The governor of New York himself, Cuomo, who many people say does not have three entire brain cells to rub together. But perhaps he can borrow a half a brain cell from Biden and maybe a brain cell or two from Ocasio-Cortez and make a full, I don't know how big the number is, but brain cells enough to run for Democrat. That's right, Cuomo might run. Look, there are some great benefits to being a senior, right? You get some discounts on things. You also have the option to join an organization of like-minded seniors who are going to make sure that the country is moving in the right direction. You might have heard of the AARP, but guess what? The AARP does not achieve that for you. The AARP is actually very left-wing. That's why I recommend AMAC for seniors, all right? So if you're a senior listening to this, trust me, you need to go check out AMAC. It was founded by an Air Force veteran, and it is the conservative alternative to AARP. You get all kinds of great benefits and value if you're a member, but also you're going to be supporting conservative policies like a secure border, like dealing with the debt, like fixing Social Security for future generations. Stand with AMAC as they fight the good fight. Become a member today. Join right now at amac.us slash buck. Again, A-M-A-C dot us slash buck amac is better better for you better for america maduro is not a venezuelan patriot he is a cuban puppet that's what he is we seek a peaceful transition of power but all options are open if you choose this path you will find no safe harbor no easy exit, and no way out. You will lose everything. So that was President Trump at CPAC over the weekend talking about what's going on in, in Venezuela. Uh, we have a friend of mine, an expert on Latin America, joining us now from the Heritage Foundation. Ana Rosa Quintana is with us. She's going to tell us what's going on right now with Venezuela and also Cuba, which has gotten into the mix. Anna, thanks so much for calling in. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, so let's just start with Trump is now tightening the Cuba embargo because Cuba is helping Venezuela. Can you walk us through the Venezuela-Cuba situation here? 
I mean, the best way of understanding the relationship between both countries is Venezuela has exported to Cuba and has kept up the Cuban government alive through oil and through petrodollars. And Cuba in exchange has provided Venezuela with a police state, which is why you have not seen the level of defections that should be normally be seen in a country with such a dire humanitarian crisis. I mean, because the police state and the, I mean, just the counterintelligence system that exists within inside of Venezuela. It's the same reason why the Castro regime has survived for 60 years. Well, they were and they were trained by the KGB. And so that's so everyone should keep in mind that the Soviet KGB trained the Castro regime secret intelligence, which has now trained Venezuela's secret intelligence. So there's that. Exactly. Exactly. And Maduro is a product of that. I mean, Maduro is not somebody who is a savvy politician or who knows the U.S. political. I mean, not at all. Maduro is a thug and he's a thug who is a Soviet trained thug. I mean, he's a diehard Castro apologist. He's obsessed with the Cuban government, obsessed with the Castro revolution, just like how Hugo Chavez was. So, you know, Anna, I I keep seeing this uh, recurring uh, criticism on the left and, and from some pretty big voices, uh, including Representative uh, Ilhan Omar, who's in trouble for some other stuff she's been saying recently. But you see it from her. You see it a lot from uh, Glenn Greenwald, who on some issues I think is very sound in his thinking. On this one, I think is pretty far off. Uh, I listen to a podcast with Jeremy Scahill. You know, you have some of these very well-known leftist American thinkers and writers who keep saying that we are engaged in a coup in Venezuela and that we're making the same mistake that we've made for decades in intervening in Venezuela. I wanted your take on on that whole line of thinking. Listen, the only intervention that's happening in Venezuela and that's been happening for the last 20 years is the Cuban-Russian-Chinese intervention, and they all have various different objectives, right? Cuba has only survived, the Castro regime has only survived because they've they've been like leeches, right? They've like sucked their teeth into a foreign country that's had more resources than they've had. You know, before it was the Soviet Union, and then, and now it's Venezuela. And it's, you know, and now you look at Russia, Russia has political objectives inside of Venezuela. Venezuela because, you know, Venezuela is a country that's in the Western Hemisphere, and now Russia can be a power broker in the future of Venezuela, a country that the United States has deep and strategic interest in. And China, again, China's economic interest in in expanding their presence in the Western Hemisphere is very well known. There's no, there, there is zero in terms of interventionism. In fact, it's the opposite. The United States and over 50 countries, this is what I think is so critical here. It's over 50 countries, and it's the majority of the Western Hemisphere. This is something that is unprecedented. You've never seen the majority of Latin America unite behind anything. They've never united against the Castro regime, and the Castro regime has been around since 1959. Yet the the majority of the Western Hemisphere has said enough is enough. The Maduro regime is a dictatorship. These guys are drug traffickers. These guys are thugs. We need to get rid of them. Now, what do you say to the criticism from the same some of the same folks? Uh, but you're doing such a good job with the other criticism. I want to throw this one at you, uh, at you too. That well, it. why why Maduro? Why Maduro? When we're friends with the Saudis, we're friends with the Chinese. You know. You know, we do business with some pretty bad people around the world. So the left is saying, and look, I, I think it's a smokescreen, but I, I want to know what, you know, what do you think? Look, I think, one, the United States does not have a cookie-cutter foreign policy, right? I mean, there's times where the United States has to 
put aside principles in terms of greater national security um, interests, right? But when it comes to Venezuela, you have to look at it from the perspective of, one, Venezuela, the Venezuelan government and high-ranking officials within the Venezuelan government are well-known drug traffickers. I mean, and I'm not talking about like small amounts. Like these guys are deeply involved with Mexican drug cartels. These guys are deeply involved with Colombia's terrorist organizations. And we have to remember, Venezuela and Colombia share a very long border. Colombia is the United States' largest foreign aid recipient. So when we look, and Colombia is also the country that is the largest cocaine producing country in the entire world. So when we start thinking about, all right, the United States still has a massive cocaine problem, right? We have an opioid crisis, that's for sure, but we still have a huge cocaine problem. So we look at the Venezuelan government's criminality, and there's a U.S. body count that's directly associated with that. That's one. Two, you look at the refugee exodus. You've you've had over 3 million Venezuelans who've left the country. If that number continues, there's 32 million million Venezuelans left behind in the country. If the political crisis, the economic crisis, the humanitarian crisis, if that continues, that is going to destabilize the rest of its neighboring countries. Colombia has already received nearly 2 million Venezuelans who have permanently stayed inside of that country. Over 50,000 leave the country every single day and are transiting through Ecuador, through Peru, through all of these other countries. Imagine if the United States, imagine if Mexico, Mexico, for example, is having a humanitarian crisis. And we have 1.5 million or 2 million Mexicans that enter our country and permanently resettle here within a time span of like four or five years. That'll completely destabilize. Exactly. It is our problem. Is this is this is it's our problem. It's a huge problem, right? And that's the thing. And I mean, and there's just so many other factors here. And it's just like, guys, what's happening in Venezuela directly impacts U.S. national security interests. What is keeping Maduro from toppling at this point and, you know, without getting too far into this from the American side, what what should the U.S., what should the Trump administration be doing? Look, so the, the Venezuelans have been really great about keeping this police state in place, right? And Maduro has, over the last 20 years, they've been able to consolidate the levers of power under their control. They control the food distribution systems. They control the electoral authorities. They control just everything. And also, they have such high-ranking, the high-ranking government officials, I mean, they've just benefited so greatly and are just so deeply entrenched from corruption, whether it's drug trafficking, food trafficking, you know, making money off of embezzling from the oil industry. I mean, it's just, the corruption's just been rampant, right? So it's obviously clear why these guys have not defected, because they really have no other options in life. It's either being a corrupt government official or just, you know, spending the rest of their days in either Russia or Havana. And so that's why we haven't seen those really high-level defections. But, I mean, there's been nearly 600 soldiers who've defected, putting their families at risk. I think that's that's pretty significant, the fact that 600 soldiers have risked the lives of their families, because now what happens is now these guys, these guys have crossed over into Colombia. Their families can be arrested. They can be imprisoned. They can be tortured. And that's probably what's happening to them right now. And that's why we haven't seen the high level of defections that, you know, that should be – that people – are, you know, thinking that should be um, seen. But the momentum and the time is not on Maduro's side. I mean, where Venezuela is right now in comparison to where it was three, four months ago, I mean, there's a strong momentum against Maduro and really time is not on his side. And in terms of what the U.S. should be doing, I think it's not just what the U.S. should be doing. It's what the international community ought to be doing. You have the over 50 countries that recognize Guaido 
these guys ought to be making sure that only Guaido has access to Venezuela's reserves abroad. If he is the interim president, if he is a legal, legitimate president, Maduro should not be able to access one single penny of Venezuelan state reserves. That's one. Two, I think every country in, in, in that entire coalition ought to be ready to name, to publicly shame all of the Venezuelan Maduro's, uh, the, the Maduro regime's families, their affiliates, their enablers within their respective countries, because there will be a day where they, will, they should no longer be allowed to enjoy living luxuriously in Spain. Also, their illicit money. I, you know, other governments should be working to seize this money as well. The U.S. has sanctioned nearly 200 some odd Venezuelan government officials. I mean, Trump has just gone sanctioning crazy. Like he's just been such a rock star at this. He's really hit these guys where it hurts, and they only care about their pocketbooks. Other countries ought to be reciprocating and doing the same. All right, Anna Quintana from Heritage. Great stuff. Thank you so much for joining us to share your expertise. And uh, we'll have more on this, and we'll follow up with you soon. All right. Talk to you soon. See, we've got more coming up. Stay with me. Background checks are an essential part of bringing people into your organization that you can trust and that are going to be productive, solid employees right away. You got to have background checks done. Also, you might need some vetting for a company you're going to work with. That's why you need people you can trust to do that work for you. That's Global Verification Network. Global Verification Network is the only dual-certified and veteran-owned background investigation and vetting company. They don't ever offshore their information. They don't ever offshore the work they're doing for you or send it overseas. A lot of the other people in this space do. If you want a company based in America, made in America, and that does their work in America, when it comes to any investigations and vetting, you want Global Verification Network. Call 877-695-1179. Again, that's... 877-695-1179 or go to mygvn.com. Again, that's mygvn.com. Grifting, this idea of grifting, what is it? What does it mean? Why is it it coming up so often these days? Well, it's basically this idea of exploiting gullible people to sell something, to raise your brand awareness. And I think it's coming up because, uh, well, look, Brian, CPAC is always been a representation of where the Republican Party is, where it's going, and I'm not sure it was ever this place for intellectual discourse, as some people would say, but it has, in recent years, um, become more like Trump. It's a celebration of Trump, and so you see a lot of grifters, people throwing red meat rhetoric out at crowds to raise their brand. Guys like Charlie Kirk, Diamond and Silk, Michelle Malkin. Those are the people there, and they they are selling books often at CPAC. They're uh, trying to uh, get subscriptions to their organizations. And so, you know, it's no longer any pretense of discussing intellectual philosophy about conservative movement. Mm. It's now about really raising your brand, owning the libs, and uh, selling your books to these people. Yeah, guys like Dan Bongino. I mean, that is absolute bullcrap. But, of course, it's, it's CNN talking about CPAC. It is absolute garbage. Now, are there some some red meat fire up the base speeches that happen at CPAC on the main stage? Of course there are, but there should be. There are very few events that occur in the United States where you show up and conservative media is well represented, never mind the dominant force. And, you know, this was the first time I had participated in CPAC as a, a speaker. It's the first time I'd really ever been to CPAC in its modern iteration. I haven't been in 10 years. I I just popped in to hear Rush Limbaugh speak back in 2000 and 
seven. Um, but this idea that there was no intellectual discourse at CPAC, I mean, first of all, whether you agree with, with me or you agree with Mark Thiessen on our Syria exchange, I represent the get out of Syria point of view with as much background and, and knowledge as, as anybody on that issue. Not to sound a little bit uh, pompous, but it's true, at least in the media, in the media, I'm not. There's a difference between people who are working the issue in the government side still. But from the media perspective, and Mark Thiessen represents the neocon point of view as well as anybody. And we really got into it. And, you know, he, he is, I disagree with them, but he's very well read and, and he's he's eloquent from his point of view uh, and, and is certainly not lacking in knowledge on the subject matter. Neither am I. And yes, that was just one. But I also did a breakout panel with Bill Gertz of the Free Beacon and a, uh, and a congressman uh, from from uh, actually from Fort Wayne. The congressman's from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Whoa, whoa, in the house. That's right. If you're listening on whoa, whoa, better come to Talk Tank, whoa, whoa, listeners. It's in April, middle of April. Check it out. Go to your whoa, whoa website. Uh, Tommy Laren and Buck Sexton. It's, we're going to bring down the house. It's going to be amazing. Uh, but but that discussion that I had with them in the, in this, in the uh, side panel, where were there about 100 people or so, maybe 75 people in the room. We really got in depth on cyber war and uh, critical infrastructure. And these are people that understand the threat of cyber espionage. And I mean, it was a very high level discussion. Gordon Chang did a a speech that was not even standing room only. People were sitting on the floor and standing to hear about how we're doing with China trade. And I mean, so, so this this idea that CPAC, it's just all buffoons and they own the libs. And, you know, this is the caricature. But really, CPAC also f- fills this very interesting position in our media culture because for a lot of D.C. journos, it's almost like a trip to the zoo to go to CPAC. They see all these different people that are their conservative counterparts and they don't socially interact with them very much. They don't work at outlets where they spend time around conservatives. And, you know, they they won't go on Fox News. They won't talk to people who work in, in talk radio like I do. I mean, that's just the reality of it. You know, I live here in D.C., and I have constant interaction with uh, people from, obviously, the Hill where I work, but from the uh, from the Washington Examiner or the Daily Caller or the Free Beacon, Fox News. You know, you go on the list. I never see any CNN people. I never see them professionally. I never see them socially because they won't they won't be around our ilk. They, they don't consider people. And this is the dirty secret of the media. They don't consider conservatives to really be colleagues. They think that conservatives at best, at best, are some kind of, uh, you know, e- exhibit. Like I said, it's almost like conservatives. We're like the menagerie. You know, ooh, we've got a couple of conservatives here. Look at the conservatives. Look at the way they eat. Look at the way they interact with each other. You know, we're we're a spectacle, an oddity. Uh, they think that what they do is media. What we do is conservative media. They don't understand that they just represent a lib, coastal, smug, elite point of view, and we represent the other half of the country. That's a, a little-known group called the other half of America. And, and share a, a point of view that maybe they should learn something about. But this also brings me to how, you know, liberals don't understand what conservatives think or how they think. They really don't. I know what liberals think. I can make their arguments for them. I, I understand very well 
what they really believe. And I can't tell you how many liberals I come across who, when whenever whenever it comes to conservative points of view, they really fall on this. Oh, it's all performance theater. Oh, it's all it's all a con. These people don't really conservatives don't really believe this stuff. And I sit around and say, uh, I socialize with, I spend time with lots of conservatives in media, many of whom you hear on this show. We really believe this stuff. We go out, we drink, we we eat, we hang out together, and we still talk about this stuff, and we really believe it. It's not a con. It's not a grift. Uh, but I, I guess that's really, for, from the from the left-wing perspective, they would prefer... Uh, they would prefer the possibility of us just being frauds instead of having to engage with our ideas. Um, and also they like that they get to slander us as frauds without having to provide any evidence or support for that. And then there's just one more thing. You know, I, I went to a, a couple of parties at CPAC where a lot of a lot of prominent conservatives were there. And, you know, and I was talking to former spec ops guys that have started me that have started their own media company. And I'm hoping to do their show soon. And they had just. We had such a fun time. So many good people at CPAC. But there were these little smug, lib reporters kind of skulking about. And I don't mean skulk. It's one thing to skulk about in the, you know, in the back of the main stage room because, you know, they're pressed. They're there covering the event and we want them to cover the event. And yes, there's going to be stuff like The Bulwark, which is a crap publication that's just a bunch of bitter people that aren't relevant anymore, hiring an anti-abortion communist to cover people at CPAC for a supposedly conservative magazine that actually happened. But you know what I saw happening and this is just tells you who these people are on the left. You had these reporters that were going to social events and you could tell they're, you know, people are drinking and they're talking and they're just looking for a conservative. It doesn't have to be a, a, a public figure to say something that they can quote out of context to trash CPAC. That's what they're there for. They're there not to cover it as journalists, but to do oppo research. And that's why the, why this discussion at you know, Brad, Brad Stelter's, oh, maybe they're all just cons. Maybe they're all just making it up. Stelter, you only have your job because you're a lib suck-up who looks like the guy who runs CNN. So there's that. We reject oppressive speech codes, censorship, political correctness, and every other attempt by the hard left to stop people from challenging ridiculous and dangerous ideas. Instead, we believe in free speech. Many emergency declarations have been used to protect people in faraway nations. Now we are protecting, finally, our people, you, our people. So Trump is pro-free speech, which liberals increasingly can't say that they are. The most interesting takeaway from his CPAC speech uh, when I was there with all the CPAC. Well, actually, I I cannot tell a lie. I was at home during Trump's CPAC speech. I was watching it. I did watch it, but I had had a late night the night before at CPAC. And so I decided to uh, get some sleep and rest up because the Secret Service requirements were that you had to be there very early in order to uh, get get close to the Trumpster when he's doing the speech. So he said that he's thinking about pulling federal funding for universities that will not commit to free speech. And what I think is so funny is that automatically liberals hear this and they go, oh my gosh, how, how will you have universities be speech police? And I have to laugh and say, okay, first of all, they already do that. 
They just do it in favor of libs. They just do it to the benefit of the left. But they're already policing speech. So all that we're trying to do is say, can you police speech to make sure that it is free? Essentially, don't police it. How about that? You are policing it now in favor of the left. How about you just don't do that thing? And liberals are all, oh my gosh, what will we ever do? How will the universities know what free... They think about this. The, the left takes the position that it's hard for the universities, for colleges to know what free speech is. If colleges can't figure out what free speech is, then I think we really need to rethink what's going on at colleges as a very, in a very general and sweeping way. Like, what would you say you do here, colleges? I think it's a very a very important idea for, for Trump to, to push out there. And keep in mind that, you know, Obama and his administration, really one of the most just despicable things that they did, or at least were thinking about doing, they at one point threatened to pull federal funding for schools. That's right, Department of Education funding for schools that if, if a state would not enact their insane transgender policy of 12-year-olds you know, showering with 12-year-old, 12-year-old boys showering with 12-year-old girls because they feel like a girl. That's what the Obama administration, yeah, that this was a real thing. They threatened to pull federal funding. Uh, so I think pulling federal funding for schools that, that refuse to be um, free speech supportive, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. I don't see what the problem is. And people say, oh, they can't implement this. I just, I point out, well, hold on a second. What about Title IX? Why do, why is it that, wrestling and and lacrosse and other programs at schools crew men's crew which i did in college uh they've been decimated across the country why is that oh because you need parity for men's and women's sports even though men generally care more about playing sports at a, at a college level than women do Shh, don't tell anybody look you can yell at me by the percentages it's i know people get mad when i say it. by the percentages it's just true it's just true doesn't mean you shouldn't have women's sports but Interest from men in playing college sports is higher than interest in women. This is a fact. But you have to have parity in the funding. Anyway, schools enforce all kinds of Title IX, including the kangaroo courts over sexual assault where the accused has no rights. The the, uh, federal government uses Title IX and and the removal of funding under Title IX as the way to implement all that. So trust me, if, if they want to, if they decide that they want to get compliance here and that free speech is important, they can get it. There's no, there's no problem. There's no no shortage of ways they can make this happen. So don't believe the left when they say, oh, my gosh, how can they have the free speech? I don't know. It's really not that hard. And if universities can't be beacons of free speech, well, where can we have that? Um, but as we know, this is, what was it, in Dune? When I am when I am weak, I play by your rules because it favors because it favors me. When I'm strong, I play by my rules because it favors me. I mean that's that's essentially the left on college campuses. I'm I'm got that quote. You know that was a paraphrase, but you know it's a good quote. It's from Dune. It's a book I should probably read at some point. Hey, Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. I just want to say a thank you to all members of Team Buck who came out to CPAC and said hello. We got to chat. 
take photos. A couple of people had me sign things, which was which was fun. So uh, thank you so much for making that happen. Good to see all of you, and I hope you enjoyed my debate with a very uh, hardcore neocon. We definitely got into it over what should be done on the question of Syria. So if you uh, got a chance to see that, I think you saw. I wish we had about another 20 minutes, but we made the best use of our time on the main main stage that I think we could have under the circumstances. So let's get to it. Um, We have first up here, Harry, who writes, oh, this is facebook.com slash Buck Saxon if you want to be a part of this party. Um, Hi, Buck. I read Mary Hudson's essay on teaching in New York. I never found it on your Facebook page, by the way, but then again, I'm a Luddite. No, Harry, I'm a Luddite because I forgot to put it on the Facebook page. That's my bad. Uh, The last two paragraphs sum it up perfectly. If lower or no standards are set, they will be met. My generation may have been one of the last ones to get a genuinely good general education uh, before racial integration, which I'm not saying is necessarily a bad thing unless coupled with lowered expectations across the board, as seems to have happened, and all the leftist nonsense took hold. Even my sister two years behind me had an inferior schooling, I believe. We had a couple of young friends, mid-20s, that seemed to know very little. I fear the leftists have won by producing a population of functional illiterates incapable of critical thought. Shields high, Harry. Um, Harry, uh, I, I don't know. Did you, um, is that all a quote from her article? I can't tell if what, what's yours and what's from that um, Mary Hudson essay on teaching in New York. Um, by the way, I would just say that... Um, the article's really good, and I should. John will remind me to put it up now. I invited her on the show, and she didn't come on the show. And as producer Mike pointed out, it's probably because she's a liberal, because she has a Ph.D. in French literature, which just doesn't sound like a very conservative resume to me. Uh, so not that you can't be a conservative and have a Ph.D. in French literature, but it's unlikely, I think. But she just had had enough with the school system and with – the most fascinating part of that essay is the attitude, the attitude that these kids in high, at high school level are owed something. And even though they don't do their homework, they don't do any work, they don't have any respect, they don't have any discipline, they're all going to get to go to four-year colleges. It's not how it works. And by the way, even if they could theoretically go, as in the funds were made available to them, that may not be a good idea. So... Um, it's a very good essay and I'll try to remember to share it. Uh, Garrett writes, been a podcast listener for nearly four years and share a show as much as I can. Thank you so much for taking a stand about the evils of abortion. My question is, what does the 2002 Born Alive Infant Protection Act not accomplish that necessitated the bill blocked by Democrats last week? Love the show, Garrett. Garrett, a very good question and I'm not sure I have the 100% correct answer on it, so I would just say that before I tell you that I think that this bill uh, added criminal penalties for the doctor for not uh, for not taking action to save the baby or to, to give the baby medical care. But it's a fair point. I would need to compare the two bills. Uh, I would need to compare them and see what's in them. Um, and I have not done that. Michael writes, hey, Buck, I was watching Fox News today. They were saying how legalizing marijuana and prostitution is a bad idea. 
However, the drug war is the worst idea as a country we've ever had, and laws against prostitution don't stop it. They just make things worse. Now I'm going to run out and vote for those crazy Democrats because of this, but I just might stay home. I think continuing to advocate for the criminalization of victimless crimes is a bad idea for Republicans. What do you think, Shields High? You know, Michael, I I think that legalizing marijuana is probably the lesser of two evils. Uh, I think that legalizing marijuana is probably the way to go. I certainly don't think that people should spend any time in prison or have their lives ruined for personal use of marijuana. I mean, I feel very strongly about that. And uh, as to prostitution, you know, I, I it's a very it's a very sad thing that that anybody would be in that position. And and the line, it as we've seen from some news reports recently between prostitution and human trafficking, right? Somebody who's essentially forced into prostitution can be a pretty thin one. Um, I, I, I think that as a moral society, it's very hard to have prostitution be, be legal. I really do. Um, I mean, this is, look, this is, this is core libertarian debate stuff and libertarians are obviously very into pushing to decriminalize victimless crimes. I would just say that marijuana is not a dangerous enough substance to be treated as a schedule one drug. That's just, that's just anti-science. I don't know how else to put it. it you know, alcohol is, is I think, a, an obviously more uh, dangerous substance in large quantities than marijuana is. Um, so the science, I think, and among other things, says legalizing marijuana is a good idea. But, you know, prostitution, I just can't. I know people do it. I know they say, oh, it's the oldest profession and all this stuff. And, you know, what, what's the line between some of these? They have all these websites now where you uh, you have you know, an arrangement or the, uh, the, they call it like the girlfriend experience or one of these things where someone, you're not explicitly exchanging money for sex, but the person expects to be, you know, you're a sugar daddy, right? You're signing up to be, so you're going to take care of them. And that means paying their bills and giving them money for things. And obviously the implication is that there will be a physical relationship you know, is that is that illegal? Uh, you know, I, I don't think so, but it, it you start to see it, it gets a little gray. But now I've been talking about prostitution way longer than I intended. Aaron writes, hey, Buck, quick question for you. I'm working a little project. I wondered how you would define conservatism. Thanks. Uh, well, conservatism is the act of conserving. And in this case, I think it would be using history to conserve the wisdom that we have learned in the past of limited government, constitutionalism, natural law, and yeah, that's a pretty good that's a pretty good off-the-cuff definition of conservatism. Uh, Seth writes, Ben Weingarten kicked butt on Friday. Well, Seth, that makes me happy to hear. Uh, ben is an old friend and a very, very smart and very good guy, and I do get a lot of positive feedback about him on the show. And like I always say, I want the best guest host possible because I want you to listen every night. I don't ever want there to be a night, whether you're listening live or listening on the podcast, where you say, eh, you know, I'm not going to tune in because Buck's not there and so and so. No, no, I want you to listen every night. Uh, so that means I, I get the best guest host that I can. Wayne. Wayne. I'm on it. I can't remember the words of that song. I, I was going to go into the, hey, Wayne. Isn't that is that Nirvana, John? I know I'm singing. That's Nirvana, right? Yeah. And isn't that, it's Wayne, right? This isn't one of these things where I have the lyrics wrong, is it? That would be, is it really? I'm, I'm wrong. I thought it's yelling Wayne. Do I, did I just do that on air? Did I just get the lyrics wrong to a Nirvana song? 
You know what I'm talking about. All right, whatever. I like I'm gonna tell you something. I'm gonna get a lot of heat for this one. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know if anyone even cares anymore. I just think Nirvana's overrated. I just think Nirvana's not that great. You know, people get so excited in the nineties about Nirvana, and I think kind of sounds like a lot of other bands. And the Say music what? is Yeah. You know what? I don't really like that drop, so we're gonna have to we're gonna have to get that one. That was producer Mike put that one in and it's not it's not for me. Uh, but see, I'm, I'm obviously in a curmudgeonly mood right now. So there's that Catherine with a Y. This is meant for roll call. Great show, Buck. My question for you is, have you read the book, The Human Factor by Ishmael Jones? It is written by a former CIA officer who says the agency is bloated and bureaucratically corrupt. Do you agree with his conclusions? Also, have you read The Fate of Nations by Sir John Glubb? Thanks for your response. Catherine, uh... I have read The Human Factor by Ishmael Jones. He is right on some of his broad conclusions about the agency being bloated and bureaucratic. Uh, that's, that is true. The book itself is very boring. Uh, so I, did not, I can't say that it's something I would recommend. But as somebody who was in the agency, yes, there's a lot, of, a lot of bloat, a lot of waste, a lot of sloth and bureaucratic nonsense. And there's really no question about that. Uh, oh, and the other one... The Fate of Nations, I have not read that. I'm almost done with The Lost City of the Monkey God, which is kind of an adventure book. It's a true story. It's about finding the city in Honduras, uh, in this area, Mosquitia of Honduras. is very, uh, the, the kind of most unexplored part of Honduras. I wish I could tell you that I really liked it, but, you know, it's a lot of like, oh, the dangerous snakes. We got to be, you know, I feel like I'm reading a book that's kind of a bad version of The Crocodile Hunter because... Yeah, there's a lot of dangerous snakes. Okay, but now you're just telling me more about... Look, I haven't finished the book, so maybe it gets better. But there's a lot of like, yeah, and then we saw this really old stone that could have been an altar for, you know, religious stuff. Ooh, tell me more about the old stone. And it's not that awesome. It's not that awesome. Andres writes, uh, Buck, your CPAC debate was masterful on Syria. It was truly painful to hear I was in the Pentagon when the planes hit on 9-11. Why do people do this? Do they think it adds to their credibility? You're a patient and thoughtful dude. I know it's rough. Keep spreading freedom and knowledge. It's not only your passion uh, we appreciate, but a gift for us all. Well, Andres, man, thank you so much. And Shields, how to you? It's very, very kind of you. And uh, yeah, I think, I think I was able to explain my position uh, well at the debate oh we got another one in here philip writes hey buck shields high outstanding performance at cpac on the syria topic you smoked teeson you made the most poignant point on the number of deployments required to fight them wherever they are professional think tankers have run our foreign policy for far too long yeah phil i, I think that they just also never learned the lesson and and that's frustrating because they don't really uh they don't really carry the burdens and they just do not learn those lessons uh so I got to find the clip of that CPAC debate so I can post it on Facebook. Uh, I'll try to do that sometime this week. Thank you so much, team, as always, for joining me here in the Freedom Hut. An honor and a privilege, indeed, a pleasure as well. Every day this week, coming to you live from D.C., from the Freedom Hut. So I will talk to you tomorrow, same time, same place. Shields high. The only truly great, patriotic, amazing way to start your day is with a delicious cup of Black Rifle coffee. It's what I do every day. I'm really into Silencer Smooth or Freedom Blend, but honestly, they've got so many delicious 
varieties of coffee. You just got to go and check them out yourself. I've got everybody at Hill TV drinking this stuff. I got the guys in the Freedom Hunter New York drinking Black Rifle. We all love it. It's delicious coffee, and it's a company founded by veterans that gives a lot back to the veteran and first responder community. So while liberals are threatening to further tax your hard-earned money with their nonsense green energy socialist crap, how about some Black Rifle coffee to fuel the fight for freedom? And by the way, Black Rifle is upping their offer to 20% off now. I mean, this is a great deal, folks. Take advantage by visiting blackriflecoffee.com slash buck and receive 20% off your order. That's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 20% off. Again, blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. 